MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. If you are watching this on video, uh, please pay no attention to the skeleton slowly getting closer and closer to the camera. On my end, we've decided to just let that one ride surely nothing weird will happen but speaking of weird things today's question are you one of the people who's heard an inexplicable bump in the night have you felt a sharp thump or a pinch against your back only to turn around and find the room behind you is empty for people who believe in ghosts or for any fan of horror movies in general today's subject will be familiar we are exploring the concept known as the poltergeist. So here are the facts. For a lot of us in the West, the term poltergeist is most often associated with a fictional film with the same name, poltergeist. In that film, there's a normal everyday family in California with the unfortunate surname of Freeling, the Freeling family. They've, <laughs> right, it's, 
I don't know. It's a good script. But they fall victim to a malevolent spirit or spirits that at first seem playful and friendly. They communicate with the kids through a television screen. But eventually, of course, they turn sinister. The youngest daughter of the household disappears. This prompts her parents, increasingly desperate, to seek help from a parapsychologist and an exorcist. And, you know, without debating whether or not Poltergeist is a horror film instead of a horror-themed family film, it's only rated PG, by the way, we can say this is this is probably... Uh, one of the things that people most associate the idea of poltergeist activity with. Yeah, wasn't wasn't there a line about a poltergeist in the first Ghostbusters movie? Mm-hmm. Doesn't he equate one of the uh, one of the the ghost sightings to being a poltergeist? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, and we also see poltergeist activity in Ghostbusters. We see, remember, in the library, books are flying off the mm-hmm. shelves, mm-hmm. right? So that's a that's a hallmark of what is often portrayed as poltergeist activity. It's weird because collectively, all the stuff we call poltergeist activity is a real thing in that there are numerous cases of purported activity throughout history. So there are real reports. The question is, what exactly are people reporting? Yeah, exactly. And by the way, Poltergeist 2 is the one that gave me nightmares as a kid. So if you're in the mood for a movie that might actually scare you, I'd recommend that one. I'll tell you what gave me nightmares, that lady with the really creepy little baby voice. Was she the exorcist or the parapsychologist? I can't remember. She was, yeah, that's right. This yeah. house is clear. Mm-hmm. Very creepy. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I think she's probably one of the most captivating parts of that. And Matt, is Poltergeist 2 the... Is that the one with the scene of the evil animated braces? That's, I, I believe, maybe I'm incorrect. I believe that's the one and the one with the meat. There's like some scene with meat that I remember watching in my cousin's house. And mm-hmm. from then on, it was it was over. Like, I couldn't look at steak the same way. I have a real soft spot in my heart for stop motion meat. Uh, there's a great stop motion meat scene in that Peter Jackson movie, Dead Alive, mm-hmm. um, also known as Brain Dead. There's like a piece of meat that's like kind of ad- adorable. There's a part where it's looking at itself in the mirror and like preening, like, oh, look at me. I'm a beautiful piece of meat. And then there's also obviously the films of Jan Svankmeyer. He animates meat a lot as well. So I-, I actually find that stuff delightful. I haven't seen part two, though. I'll have to check it out. I just remember the creepy clown from one. We have. We have, uh, speaking of meat, we have uh, an artist in our audience who does these like photorealistic paintings of meat. I've, I've got a, actually, I have one of those hanging up in the house. I'll, I'll put it up here when I get this set together. But with, with Poltergeist, I think we can agree one of the other really compelling characters is the villain. No spoilers, but he's, he's, he's a really creepy guy who <laughs> walks through. I remember being a kid and, and, uh, really catching his vibe when he goes to the doors of houses and he's like, all are welcome, all are welcome. <laughs> you guys may remember that. But they didn't make up, the The point of this is they didn't make up all the stuff that happens uh, just in a brainstorming session in the writer's room. They were taking accounts of things that have been reported as real-life events, and they didn't make up the word poltergeist either. It comes from the German language. It's a, uh, it's a combination of two words, poltern, making sound to rumble, and geist, ghost or spirit. So 
it's not a huge plot twist uh, that we would call a noisy spirit of poltergeist, especially if we were German. The phrase does go back a long time, right? Uh, 1800s, I believe, in Germany, 1838, something around then. Mm-hmm. But but it's not just Germany. That, that wasn't the only place. Just because they came up with the name doesn't mean they're the only ones experiencing something like this. In a lot of places, there are other invisible entities that aren't necessarily spirits or ghosts that have the power to, in some way, manifest in the corporeal world, move things, push people, interact with us and objects. Um, it really, there, there's a wealth of historical uh, tales, even if it's, even if they're not true, or perhaps you don't believe that they're true stories. There are so many tales throughout time about this kind of activity. Yeah, collectively known as ghost lore instead of folklore sometimes, which I think is just chef's kiss. I So to your point, Matt, there might be uh, cases in merry old England that were blamed on a Bogart instead of a poltergeist. But if you look at what's happening or what's being reported to have happened, uh, the activities are very much the same. That means that a lot of people throughout time and uh, throughout the geography of the world have been reporting similar things under a different name. So the term poltergeist is an umbrella label that we're using to describe any number of things. And for the true believers, a poltergeist can be best understood as sort of a genre of a ghost, a type of entity or spirit. Uh, Or it can also be understood as just that set of activities or abilities attributed to these kinds of things. I mean, if you wanted to assign like a personality to a poltergeist, it's kind of the gremlin of the ghost world, right? Because it's like, you know, its activities can range from the mischievous, like we said in Poltergeist the movie, where it's like stacking chairs or, you know, making books flutter around like in Ghostbusters or a little bit more devious, but they're not your exorcist level demonic uh, power. You know what I mean? They tend to be a little more innocuous, uh, but then we have examples where things go a little further than that. So it is a genre, like you said, kind of a wide swath of ghostly attributes. Yeah, and we did talk about how generally whatever this entity is purported to be, it is invisible to most observers. Now, if not all observers, it's just, it's, it's either invisible or mostly invisible. Mm -hmm. And you might hear it speak in some cases, Uh, usually to say some like cryptic, epic, threatening stuff. Very rarely to say like, Oh, Hey, sorry. I I didn't know that was the good China that I busted. Mm -hmm. But we see in the cases where we see poltergeists specifically portrayed or described as entities, we also see several common threads. First, the big one, the one we've already talked about a little bit, the movement of objects by some undetermined means. Cutlery flying through the air, the good china. Yeah, falling out of the hutch, furniture being overturned, books zooming off shelves, mirrors cracking, windows, doors slamming open, then shut. Psychokinesis, maybe, but the the best way to describe it right now in the episode is movement of objects by undetermined means. That's the first thread, uh, but there are two other really big ones. Right. Uh, I mean, we often see these events centered around a person, a haunted individual that is being visited by this, uh, you know, somewhat malevolent spirit. Um, And often, but not always, it's an adolescent girl, uh, which is interesting. Yeah, and we'll probably talk about this later in the episode, but 
the concept of puberty and uh, in the female body specifically uh, appears to be something that has been looked at before, like uh, through actual scientific means. It feels a little sketchy, uh, but we'll, we'll talk about it a little later. It's dodgy for sure. Yeah. Right? And, and that's, that's part of our exploration today hinges on that aspect because it is relatively unusual in the world of ghost lore to have uh, a specific person being haunted fitting that, like, because of that demographic. There's a question of causation that's tremendously important. The third big thread in this ghost lore is that the poltergeist usually isn't just messing around. It has an aim, a motivation, a cause. In the fictional film Poltergeist, promise, last time last time we'll bring it up, the, the antagonistic spirit, the all-are-welcome, all-are-welcome character, wants to kidnap the youngest daughter of the, again, unfortunately named Freeling family because it will be able to gain power by consuming her light. And this is heavily implied to be something innate to her, possibly at this time in her life. Although she's younger, uh, she's like eight years old. Uh, it's, it's heavily implied that it might also be like some kind of Shining-esque nascent psychic powers. There's something special about her. Uh, but with those three common threats, with the idea of telekinesis, psychokinesis, or moving objects, the idea of a certain type of person being haunted, and the idea of the ghost or spirit or entity having an aim, uh, we can see examples of poltergeist, or I should say examples of poltergeist stories reported as fact throughout history. Like we could, you, there is probably a podcast that examines each one of these in the, in the canon, and that podcast could be entirely dedicated to it. But we wanted to give you a few examples of poltergeist stories, some you may have heard of before, some you may have not. That's great, and we can start out with uh, a haunting, a purported haunting that occurred in Tennessee. It's known as the Bell Witch of Tennessee. Mm. Now, uh, it's it's quite old. It's quite a bit older than a lot of the ones we'll be talking about. This one originates in the 1800s between 1817 and 1821. And here's the gist of the story. There's a family there in Tennessee. The father or the head of the household, his name is John Bell Sr. And the entire house, all everybody living in it, f begins to experience strange stuff. There's some entity that they think is an entity, at least, that has the ability to speak to them, like directly to them while they're in the house that is not a member of the family, just somebody else, some disjointed voice that talks to them. And it's also able to do things that we've described earlier in a lot of these commonalities. It's moving things. It's throwing things. It's able to affect the physical environment. And it's able to, they think, shapeshift into other things that they will then see maybe around the house, um, maybe even within the house, but they are attributing all of these sightings to the same one thing, the same entity. Yeah. And, and this, this story is one of the most famous accounts of poltergeist activity in the U S you have probably heard something about it. You've probably also 
perhaps unknowingly, seen some piece of fiction based on this. The verdict here, I organize these by like time, place, just verdict. So, so the verdict here is that there is a huge problem with any research into this story. The huge problem is this. The first printed account called The Authenticated History of the Bell Witch was published in 1894. That's 75 years after these events occurred. And for this reason, the authenticated history of the Bell Witch is often treated as a work of historical fiction. Our modern understanding of whatever the facts may be is inevitably tainted by all the embellishments that occurred, uh, you know, in the almost centuries worth of time before something happened and after it got written about. And not, I mean, taking into account all the embellishments that have occurred since it was published in 2020. Because there right. are videos, you can find videos online right now, like pretty recent videos that claim a lot of things about the Bell Wish. And there's an important part of time here, too, when we talk about our observations. You'll notice that uh, there, there's a, um, a sort of glory days of poltergeist reporting, and it drops off around the time that we entered into the glory days of the technological revolution. So our when we hear stories about the Bell Witch, even if we go to the closest primary source we can find, we're still almost a century away from what happened. So it's it's just very difficult to know what is true, what is not. So that's that's one example. And we're not saying nothing weird happened. We're saying it is almost impossible to figure out out of the things that are reported, which are factual and which are later rumors people added because it made them sound cool at the general store or at the local saloon. Next, we have uh, what's collectively referred to as the Great Amherst Mystery that took place in Nova Scotia, Canada. There's another Canadian, uh, pretty famous Canadian um, uh, poltergeist story called the Chilwack Poltergeist. I only say that because I did a podcast about this part of Canada once and I pronounced it Chilliwack and I got yelled at. So Chilwack. This one, though, is in Nova Scotia, Canada that took place between 1878 and 1879. Um, an 18-year-old female by the name of Esther Cox uh, lived with her sister's family and was the victim of an attempted sexual assault. Uh, shortly after that took place, there came a series of knocks, bangs, uh, rustles, and all sorts of other, again, like these noises that are associated, the whole idea of the ghost, what is it, the, the noisy ghost or the ghost clang, as the name uh, translates to in German. These noises were plaguing the household, keeping people up all night. Esther started having seizures. Parts of her bodies would swell. Um, and this is kind of the escalation we're talking about. She was simultaneously feverish and then would get chills uh, at various different times. And objects in the house would appear to fly around uh, of their own volition. And visitors came over the next few months. Um, they left with the pretty serious impression that this was actually happening that there was a poltergeist at work. This would have been a phenomenon that would have been familiar to folks uh, in those days um, because of that lore and things like the Bell Witch. And a lot of contemporaneous investigators believe this to be a series of supernatural events, but there are later things in the chronology that prove this might not be the case entirely. For a time, Esther Cox fell ill with diphtheria, and when she was confined to her bed for about two weeks, I believe, 
the activity ceased entirely. This is one of the reasons that later investigators like Walter F. Prince in 1919 built a pretty compelling case for uh, trickery on the part of Esther Cox. However, he was uh, he was quick to say he thought this occurred while in a disassociative state. So that would mean that Cox herself was not like actively trying to make things worse. And she got locked up for arson uh, later in life. She only served one month out of four. And when she came back after that month in prison, the event ceased entirely. She got married twice. She lived a normal life uh, until passing away at the age of 52. So there are weird things that happened in her life that uh, seemed to coincide with drop-offs in the ghost activity. It was also not activity during that month she was in prison. Interesting. If, if you blast a little bit later in history, in 1967, you've got another one that, that has some similar hallmarks. Uh, in a lawyer's office in Rosenheim, Germany, there were a, a very similar uh, series of occurrences that revolved around a 19-year-old secretary named Anne-Marie uh, Shabari. Uh, things like lights flickering and paintings, you know, going crooked and falling off the walls. And, um, you know, when the fluorescent tubes were unscrewed, there would be like massive arc electrical spikes and furniture moving, things like that. And it was investigated and they called in uh, physicists and parapsychologists uh, by the name of Hans Bender. Um, and he investigated and couldn't figure it out. But uh, it was kind of believed uh, pretty widely that this was a hoax. There were apparently hidden nylon threads found. Um, and, uh, and similar to, to the previous story, Ben, uh, the incidents stopped when this uh, the secretary left the employee of the firm in 1968. It's weird because if you believe that something is actually happening, the leaving of somebody or the removing of someone from a situation may make you believe or may make you think that the haunting is attached to that person. So when they leave, no more haunting. Yeah, but per, it, poltergeist haunts a person, not a yeah. place, right? That's one of the assumptions. But if you're skeptical, well, obviously it stopped when that person is gone. Similar to a crime being committed or something like a serial killer being caught. Once you put away that person, there's no more killings. It is problematic, though, because, you know, a lot of the, the kind of debunking of these things revolve around, you know what? Kids like attention. <laughs> And kids like to, you know, maybe uh, some with a, a little bit more of a sociopathic desire for attention could possibly go to some great lengths to uh, say, look at me, you know, and, and get that that desired attention. And so but it's interesting because because it's a revolve around a person when that person leaves, it goes away. And so you, it's very easy to kind of like get those things uh, mashed up together, you know, which which is it? Well, and there's also. Uh, there's something to talk about here about the length of time of a haunting, how long something actually lasts, because we've seen here already in what we've been talking about that these can go on for years, or in the case of uh, the uh, the events that, Noel, you already mentioned here earlier, the Chilliwack poltergeist in Canada, it only went on for, I think, two months, right? 
And that's another thing that's associated with these poltergeist occurrences. They're typically pretty short. Uh, they're not years. They're usually, you know, three or four months, maybe five months max, which still seems like an awful long time to be tortured by a restless spirit. But yeah, this was from, I think, uh, two months between 51 and 52. And it, it's just the same kind of stuff. Loud sounds, bangings on the wall, uh, flying objects and the like. And then there's another case around the same time, the Brother Dolly case, where you had Stains, which is a new one, uh, carvings of images and words in Welsh language um, of a religious nature, to your point, Ben, of that cryptic kind of vaguely religious language. And this one took place for multiple years. Yeah, yeah. So these commonalities should not be considered um, hard constraints. There are always going to be things that occur on the edges. Again, there are many examples uh, one thing I love about them is their odd, fascinating names. The marketing is wonderful. You've got the drummer of Tedworth, <laughs> the black monk of Pontrefract, and the Seaford poltergeist, and so on and so on. But I want to I, I, I want to explore that one common thread uh, that I was saving till now, which is simply put, kids crave attention. So many parents in our audience today likely recognize this idea. Kids want attention, right? Sometimes they'll do weird things. Sometimes they'll do things they know they're not supposed to do. Sometimes they'll do pranks, even inappropriate behavior to get some eyes on them. Uh, just so you know, my, my son, while we were recording this, uh, has been has he's coming like three times. You probably haven't seen it or heard it, hopefully, because Paul is doing his job very, very well. But, uh, <laughs> but like the... Ben and Noel have probably seen him come in and I'm having to mute and look at him. And it's just because he needs attention right now. And he knows that I'm doing and something. And he's great at it, though. Like, he's 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 a charmer. He's an attention ninja. I love it. Well, also, <laughs> earlier, though, like, there was, like, this very ghostly, plaintiff little piano line wafting in the background. I'm like, what is what is this ghostly piano? Oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's the boy. Like, no more piano play while dad's recording. Damn you. I think <laughs> I think he plays piano pretty well, no, too. It was by the awesome. Way. Just, like to, just to point that some out. Some nine inch nails or something. It was yeah. super spooky. So this idea, right, which is something clearly we in the show can identify with and clearly something you listening can identify with. It, this, this is a common thing. And it's part of the reason that more skeptical investigators, uh, people like Joe Nickel with two L's, will argue that poltergeist activities are typically caused by what he describes as an individual motivated to cause mischief. So there is someone haunting the house and throwing things, and they <laughs> do have a mission, and they just happen to be human rather than otherworldly. Right. He, said, he notes that, um, this is something, Matt, you and I were talking about off air, he notes that a lot of these seemingly telekinetic events, when you look at the facts of the case, the placement of the people and the things, a lot of these things are uh, events that could easily be accomplished by a kid who's out to like plague their somewhat gullible parents. And then, of course, when things are told and retold and embellished, uh, maybe, maybe there are some parents or people in authority who don't want to say, well, it turned out my nine-year-old had figured out like a pretty clever way to spook the shit out of me by knocking on, you know, the upstairs bathroom floor at three in the morning. And then we, so instead I'm going to embellish it and I'm going to say, you know, it went away when I prayed, not when my kid went back to, you know, their grandparents <laughs> yeah. for the summer. And, and that's how you end up with strange stories 
of like Andrew Jackson visiting the Bell Witch before he became president. It's a great yarn. It's also completely untrue. I love it. So that's why we we see this idea. Now, unless lest anybody think that we're being discriminatory against children who are obviously awesome, we have to note that in numerous cases, numerous, numerous, numerous cases, Competent investigators found activity, activities purported to be poltergeist provably hoaxes perpetrated by children, such as the famous Fox sisters. And proving the thing is, proving that those things were hoaxes did nothing to uh, stem the popularity of the story. Of course people not. loved it. People, people don't want the truth. People want a cool story. People want like something that captivates their imagination. The truth is always way less interesting. You know, it it, it makes me think some of these parents probably deserved it. You guys, they were probably awful parents and they needed to have a good lesson taught to them. Like in Matilda, where she like, you know, gradually files off the bottom of her father's shoes or something like that to make him think he's getting shorter or hems his pants, does something weird like that, but super covertly and over a long period of time to make him think he's losing his mind uh, that, you know, and they were horrible parents. I mean, I know it's just a story, but, you know, that stuff holds true. Yeah, the reality is. It appears that in several of these cases, there's there has been something terrible going on. Or the True. one we just the one we just mentioned um, was it Cox, Amherst yeah. with Esther Cox. Yeah, I mean, a sexual assault was involved. There was trauma, and there was a need for something, right? But that she needed something. It appears that way, at least. And it was probably attention and care, and you know. It appeared there are several that we've looked at. One of them that occurs in Ohio, I think Columbus, Ohio in 1984 that we can talk about maybe a little later where there's the same kinds of thing happening there. There's somebody who is in great need, who is a child who um, is looking for something that maybe they're not getting. I deeply appreciate that point because it's something we had explored in our earlier look at exorcism specifically non-Western exorcism. There are socio-political factors inherent in this uh, because all people are intelligent. Even or children. Have or have the potential to be so. Yeah, children are terrifyingly intelligent. They're brilliant. Uh, until about puberty, I guess. But we, we see people who are traditionally left voiceless through one avenue or another in society finding innovative ways to make their voices heard. So it shouldn't be surprising that children who are often not listened to will do their level best to be heard. And just like in the case with um, non, a lot of non-Western exorcisms, many of the possessed are themselves children or they are people identifying as women who are in societies that oppress women. So now it's not me voicing a problem, says the possessed. Uh, or the haunted, now it is another entity, a powerful one, one that society must pay heed to. Uh, there's a very interesting sociological argument there, but what gives, you might be saying, are you all out here to ruin my Wednesday or Friday by telling me that all poltergeists are hoaxes? Are they just misunderstandings of mundane phenomenon? Could there be any real provable sand to at least some of the stories? God, I hope not. Maybe. We'll tell you after a word from our sponsor. 
As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin. and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
here's where it gets crazy. So, I mean, you know, we've we've been through, we've spent the first part of this episode kind of debunking as we go a little bit. And indeed, there are hoaxes aplenty in the world of poltergeist, just like there are in the world of psychics and mediums and all that. There's a lot of pageantry involved. Um, I'm fascinated by the angle of children being kind of forgotten and mistreated and, and using this kind of uh, behavior as a way of acting out or, or you know, giving themselves a voice. But while the vast majority of the events paranormal researchers tout as solid proof of poltergeists are often pretty readily dismissed by academics and and skeptics, science does have some interesting um, ideas about what might actually be happening to folks who would be unfortunate enough to be actual victims of some sort of antagonistic supernatural uh, force. So poltergeist as a natural phenomenon um, is super unsettling. Uh, uh, is it a figment of the mind or something more? Yeah, it's no secret that scientists have for a long time, uh, if we want to be polite, we will say scientists have for a long time suspected that ghosts are uh, an illusion or they're a, uh, a cultural lens through which we interpret other events. There are a series of sensations maybe created in the mind of us as observers. This is compounded by the fact that patients who suffer from specific types of neurological or psychological conditions often have reported strange presences around them, hearing voices, right, from no discernible source. Uh, This is not just something that happens through the lens of mental illness as we now understand it. This is also probably... uh, Neurology probably plays a huge part in the role of historical prophets, visionaries, and saints, and so on. But dismissing every alleged case of a poltergeist haunting as the product of an unsound mind doesn't give due diligence to the events themselves. We never want to be that jerk in any horror movie or story who says, it's only the wind. And someone's like, ah, I'm bleeding out of my eyes. That's that's the wind. It just, it looks like blood because it's in your eyes. We don't want to be those people. Yeah, we, we don't. And we also don't want to be those people that, you know, believe that because someone is experiencing something like that, that, I don't know, I, I, I have problems with thinking about it as an unsound mind, right? I do wonder sometimes if there is something more to that connection beyond, you know, to maybe um, seeing someone or hearing the voice of a muse or someone like that that isn't truly there. Um, I, I wonder, we would say it's an unsound mind because it's not a nominally functioning mind, right? It doesn't, that person doesn't experience the the, the world the way that many of us do. Sure. But I think there's, I think there is, uh, there's something special to that experience. Yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a profound link, isn't there? We we don't understand the brain fully. We don't really understand the creative process, not a hundred percent. And we also, I I don't know. I I agree. I think it is uh, dismissive to immediately. Say, it's the same thing as saying you're crazy. And honestly. <sighs> Honestly, the way we use normal for most conversational descriptions of this stuff, that's 
border borderline ridiculous. Normalcy in that sense is a myth and never really existed. It's as made up as uh, some of the more skeptical folks might think ghosts are. But uh, the point of this is to you, to what you're saying, Matt, if we dismiss any kind of description like this automatically as the product of a quote unquote unsound mind, then we are not exercising critical thinking and we are not conducting good science. And maybe more importantly, we're not helping a person who is convinced that something is making their life horrific. So we have to look at the studies. And luckily, there are studies about this. There's one really interesting one we found that that happened because some people in Switzerland got together and they wanted to see whether they could recreate the experience of being physically touched by a ghost. Not only whether they could recreate it, but whether they could provably reproduce it multiple times. And the crazy thing is, they did. Yeah, I mean, I believe that that uh, two of the volunteers got so freaked out that they like peaced out and were, were like, "I, we're, I'm done. We're done with this." Um, and it, it's really interesting the way they set up this experiment. They actually uh, used robotics, um, and they allowed twelve volunteers to control the movement of this like jointed robot arm using their index fingers. Uh, and the first vol- set of volunteers were blindfolded, and those mo- mo- uh, movements rather were relayed to another robotic arm, which would touch the volunteers back. Uh, I'm assuming it was, I mean, obviously it would be in pure darkness since they're blindfolded. Um, When both the finger pushing and the back touching occurred at the same time, it created a compelling illusion. I'm trying to picture this. So it's another individual touching the device and then it's syncing up with another device. I'm I'm, I'm a little bit. Uh, Yeah. Go ahead, Matt. I'll paint a picture for you. Imagine you're standing in a room. You got a blindfold on right in front of you. Where, like, at arm's reach, there is a device that you can control right here, right? Doing it. Uh, right Immediately behind you, there is a robot that's on a shelf. And it's got an arm that can extend out and come back. And all you're doing is manipulating what's in front of you. And then in real time, the way you would with a video game controller, that robot is touching your back as you are telling it to touch your back. They were not aware of this robotic arm at the back though yes exactly they just thought they were manipulating this thing in front of them so when it was working like that in real time um it gave this the volunteers the sensation that they were touching their own backs somehow um because it was in sync but the weird stuff occurs when they gave the um the the pushing of the button and then the actual action of touching the back they gave it a delay of about 500 milliseconds Very slight delay, right? Uh, Just ever so slightly off. Just a little bit of kind of a a tactile, uncanny valley vibe is how I would describe it. And so when this happened, suddenly the volunteers did not feel this, like, I'm unsettlingly touched, touching my own back somehow. They felt that they were being touched by something else, something inhuman, by a ghostly presence. And then they also additionally, again, just because of that delay, had the feeling that they were being watched. They reported that they had, they felt as though they were drifting backwards 
toward this unseen ghostly hand, which means their proprioception, your sense of your body in space, was being fundamentally influenced. And then they they also reported, on average, the strong sensation of two invisible presences standing very, 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 very close to them. Like when you, you know how if you put your hand close enough to the skin of someone with a fever, you can feel the warmth, right? So something like that. And several volunteers reported up to four presences. So a 500 millisecond delay made them think there was a gang of ghosts that was just sort of tapping them, you know, doing whatever their robot hand was instructed to do. And two volunteers got, uh, to use the scientific term, severely freaked out. It, uh, <laughs> it, harshed, it harshed their mellow, you know, and they refused to continue the experiment. So the report argues that these sensations, these things we call ghosts, do not haunt the waking world. Instead, they haunt our brains. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. And I mean, honestly, like as you were walking through these descriptions and I'm kind of closing my eyes and trying to picture this, I kind of started freaking myself out a little bit because it is a a very strange, disfluent sensation to like be thinking you're in control of something and then introduce that lag and introduce that other element where, yeah, I could see how like if I was facing forward and I'm touching something that's in front of me and then all of a sudden I feel it like the feedback loop of that is, is a little disconcerting, but then you introduce that delay, not to mention the sensory deprivation of just being blindfolded alone. That's probably a big part of it too. Um, I imagine if you did this in a purely sensory deprived environment, it would probably amplify those sensations a lot because the, the feeling of moving backwards or the feeling of like being disjointed in space and time um, a lot, you know, you can, you can trick yourself into a lot of things just by closing your eyes really hard and seeing visual distortions and sunspots and all the little flashy things that happen. Um, I could imagine this harnessed that pretty damn well, pretty, how do you come up with this? What a weird uh, concept. What a weird experiment. <laughs> I guess they got a good deal on robot arms. Yeah. You know, or they had that's, some that's leftover from some study. other thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They knew a guy. <laughs> uh, also, if you, if you want to experience, uh, there are a lot of interesting hacks you can do to your own sense of proprioception. Uh, one, uh, one thing for the gamers in the crowd, you can play a game called Mirror's Edge. It's a first person POV parkour game. Matt, I, I think you and I may have talked about this years back when it came out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a that's a really fun, strange game. In fact, you can just do virtual reality of any kind. In a lot of ways, you can experience some of that stuff. True. Um, yeah. Or you know, just take a shower in the dark. That's what I do. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's weird that uh, people uh, shower <laughs> with the lights on. Uh, you know what I mean? Un- 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 like unrelated. Have you guys ever drink a beer in the shower? It's apparently a thing people love to do, and I did it for the first time the other week. And let me report back. It is a delightful little luxury. A shower beer. Just putting that out there. Unrelated. Please continue. <laughs> so a co-author of this study, uh, by the way, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the study came about in 2014 led by a professor, Olag Blanke, and his co-author summed up their findings by saying the following, quote, our brain possesses several representations of our body in space. Under normal conditions, it is able to assemble a unified self-perception of the self from these representations. But when the system malfunctions because of disease, or in this case, a robot, 
This can sometimes create a second representation of one's own body, which is no longer perceived as me, but as someone else, a presence. So also shout out to Stuff You Should Know. Did they do that? They did an episode on that rare uh, psychological condition where someone feels like their hand is not their own. Yeah. Uh, Oh, what is that called? What is that called? It's called Phantom Hand. Phantom Hand. I'm kidding. I don't know what the hell it's called. That sounds very unsettling, though. I don't. I don't like it one bit. That was in the TV show. Were Were we on set for that episode? I think we were. Yeah, the characters based on us play play a role in that. Uh, <laughs> Alien hand syndrome, I believe, That's is it. the name. Uh, and then there's phantom limb. But I like phantom hand. That also sounds like a cool martial arts totally. move that you would see in a in a kung fu movie. But so there we have. It. These feelings of presence, the researchers call them FOPs. These feelings of presence, again, through a cultural lens, are often interpreted as spirits, angels, demons, other supernatural creatures, because, you know, many of these reports occur before the rise of modern psychology or modern research into neurology. And we do have one last note that uh, pertains to our earlier conversation about neurological disorders. Because you see, before the researchers took these volunteers and subjected them to the terror of the unknown robot hand, they scanned the brains of people who had neurological disorders and had also encountered feelings of presence in the past. That's right. And they identified disturbances within those brains in three specific regions the insular cortex, the parietal frontal cortex, and the temporoparietal cortex. Now, that may mean nothing to you, as it does to me, a guy who doesn't know much about parts of the brain. But these these sectors within all of our heads, we've all got these, they're involved in self-awareness, our understanding of where we are in space and time and who we are, what we are, in the sensations of movement in creating movement within our bodies and our sense overall of where we exist in physical space and time. So kind of weird, right? Those are important things to just be able to function, right? Knowing where you are, (laughs) what you are and how to uh, move about. So we're going to, we're going to continue down and find some things that are even spookier in this world of uh, scientific research into what causes possibly poltergeists and other ghost encounters. But first, we're going to hear a word from our sponsor. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return, your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. 
Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we come to it. This is ah, this is my favorite part. This is the weirdest, most out there part. Uh, this involves two Italian researchers, Piero Brovetto and Vera Maxia. They sought to explain the origin of poltergeist phenomena through the lens of what they would describe as a quantum mechanical vacuum. Let us pause and participate in the silent groans that every physicist in the audience just expelled. Here's the deal. We Uh, teased this at the top, by the way. Right, right. (laughs) And this is, uh, you know, this is an argument familiar to people who perhaps delved into uh, speculative science 
for characters like Carrie in the Stephen King novel and, and later film. These researchers argue that children uh, during puberty undergo tremendous physiological changes, various parts of their bodies, including, of course, the brain. That's not controversial. That's something we can all agree on. Most of us listening to the show today have probably experienced puberty firsthand. If you have not, you're in for a wild ride. Congratulations uh, make, and sorry. <laughs> yes, make the most of it. Super fun. So here's where these researchers' ideas take a sharp turn into fringe science. Brevetto and Maxia did not stop there. They argue that changes in the adolescent brain, particularly that of biological females, uh, somehow involve fluctuations in electron activity, long story short, that can somehow create disturbances up to, quote, a few meters around the outside of the brain. And these disturbances, they say, would be similar in character to the quantum mechanical fluctuations that physicists believe occur in the vacuum, in which virtual particle and antiparticle pairs pop up for just a fleeting moment before they annihilate each other and disappear again. And then it starts over, right? They just, something strange happens with those virtual and antiparticles. And they go on to say that within the pubescent brain, the extra fluctuations that are triggered because of that, what the brain is going through, they believe that the number of virtual particles surrounding the person is increased. <sighs> Which again, like I'm still wrapping my head around just the concept of virtual particles, but it's all good. The, the concept here is that it would slowly increase the presence of air around them. I was just trying to Google virtual particles and it came up with virtual party ideas, which I guess is a product of uh, COVID. Uh, please, Matt, mm -hmm. please continue. So sorry. Oh, yeah. Okay, so increasing the number of virtual particles around a person, in theory, according to these guys, would also increase the air pressure surrounding them. And the thought is maybe the way the air pressure then is altered could make a physical object a paper or something with very little mass would be much easier to manipulate than maybe a telephone uh, or something like that. But they're saying they could move an object potentially by changing this air pressure with their virtual particle pubescent brains. <laughs> and yeah, that if that is, you believe them, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, because think about uh, the tremendous change in air pressure that would be needed to, to your point, Matt, move uh, very heavy objects. Piece of paper? Maybe. Yeah, why not? Uh, Slam a door? Uh, yeah. An Oxford English Dictionary, right? Uh, two, three very different objects in space. So as we previously established in earlier episodes, everything we know about the brain right now seems to indicate that this would be at the very least an implausible series of events. This paper was published, by the way, in the journal Neuroquantology, one note that I find hilarious, Brian Josephson, a Nobel laureate physicist who is on the editorial board of neuroquantology, was contacted for his input about the paper. And while he was trying to be nice, he said, it sounds distinctly flaky to me. At which point, uh, reading this, I rolled my eyes and thought, editors. <laughs> but 
you know, despite being a little tight on time here, this is all to prove that there is research happening in this field. We've got like a brief shout out toward the very end to one of my favorite hobby horses in this realm. Uh, but Noel, you wanted to tell us a little bit about the work of one Ian Stevenson, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, only to kind of highlight the the idea that, you know, we know from folks like Russell Targ, you know, who is a very renowned physicist um, who did work with MIT in their research labs, uh, but then ultimately went on to uh, focus his life's work on developing technology and methods for uh, harnessing psychic abilities, something that the scientific community at large doesn't believe to be a thing. And this is a guy who comes from that world. And I'm always fascinated by, and it always gives a little more credence to some of these claims when you see people that kind of make that transition from the scientific to the more spiritual or fringy or what have you. So uh, this is a good example of that. This guy, Ian Stevenson, um, he uh, was a Canadian psychiatrist, uh, Canadian-born psychiatrist, but did did his work in the U.S. Uh, at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. He worked there for 50 years. He was the chair of the Department of Psychiatry from 1957 to 1967 um, and a Carlson professor of psychiatry from 1967 to 2001. And I, I happened upon him in, in preparing for this episode uh, from a paper that he wrote in the Journal of American Society for Psychical Research. Um, and this is from volume 66 from June of 1972. And the title of the work is, Are Poltergeists Living or Are They Dead? Um, and, and the thing I liked about that is that it kind of presupposes that poltergeists are real phenomena. You know, it like launches in with that kind of preconceived understanding. And I, I appreciated that because it's not trying to debunk it. It's kind of trying to explain it a little bit and go through some examples that he found in his research, uh, most of which took place in India. And it was a lot of the things we're talking about. There's one called the case of Sasir Kumar, which he acknowledges had some problems in it because there was a long gap from when the events of the case actually occurred. And then when they were recorded largely by uh, folks who didn't necessarily witness it, but he, he goes through and describes them very matter of factly things like books flying off shelves and food, uh, disappearing and and um, other, you know, some of these kind of run-of-the-mill poltergeist type activities. And uh, a lot of his work wasn't so much focused on poltergeist. It was more focused on uh, proving the existence of the afterlife. So I didn't want to go too, too, too deep into him, but if you if anyone wants to read this paper, I definitely recommend it. It's it's uh, You can find the full text of it as a PDF online, and it's called Are Poltergeist Living? Or are they dead? And just an interesting dude. I think he'd be uh, good to, to dive into a little bit more. But there are examples of folks from the scientific community that do put some credence into this whole phenomenon. And then don't just think it's, you know, our mind playing tricks on us, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So these Italian researchers and then researchers like Stevenson. Uh, he also has some interesting work on reincarnation which makes the same kind of assumption. It starts from the assumption that reincarnation exists and attempts to prove the process that it, that it occurs through. A, but, a cool thought experiment. A cool thought a million experiment, percent. yes. But again, he gets shredded by a lot of colleagues. He's not, uh, you know, he is definitely has his critics. And there's an elephant in the room that we have to address. We set up at the top. We said it's one of the most prominent, uh, not your room, Matt. There's an, elephant okay, in, uh, okay. <laughs> there's an elephant in the room inside all of us, right? Uh, in our hearts. Elephants are amazing. Yeah. yeah. And the, or whatever we have that passes for such. Uh, so 
This elephant in this episode is the concept of psychokinesis, telekinesis. Why is all this weird shit moving around, right? That's the question that so many people have asked over the course of human civilization. While we have explored a few common causes or explanations for poltergeists, pranks by the living, often children, scrambled sensory processing in our brains, and the possibility of a still unproven entropic neural activity related to puberty, there is this one big, ghostly, spooky, Carrie-esque elephant. Things moving without physically touching them. This has been treated as a distinct type of research, one without the trappings of campfire tales and ghost stories and spooky stories to tell in the dark type approaches. There has been a ton of research into psychokinesis, and some of it is very easily dismissed. And there's some that's more interesting. In a future episode, I would love for us to dive deeper into the strange experiments at Duke University beginning in the 1930s. This is when the university opened an official parapsychology lab headed by one J.B. Rhine. J.B. Rhine may be familiar to some of us. He is the guy who literally coined the term parapsychology. So... We're going to get into that later, and I think you're right. We have to get into Stevenson later. Uh, we may even get into specific, more robustly documented poltergeist cases later in the future if this is of interest to our fellow conspiracy realists. To bring it all back around, however, for our purposes today, we're not saying that strange things did not occur and later become recognized or uh, called poltergeist cases. We're saying that the causes of these things were often misattributed. That part is inarguably true. We're also saying that as time went on, society began to shape the original stories to something that would fit their own larger or smaller narratives. And they became embellished with multiple retellings. They became increasingly compelling at the cost of becoming decreasingly factual. That's, that's what happened, especially with the older ones in the 19th century when we're looking at, you know, the rise of spiritualism and so on. And, you know, poltergeist in the crowd, uh, if you feel like we got it wrong, let us know. Yeah, I need, I need Did to... you hear that? Stop it. I, I don't know what's going on. You guys on. are a bunch of jerks. Some, somebody's playing drums on my desk underneath it don't make me actually go play the actual <laughs> drums to to spook the poltergeist because i'll do it well that uh that skeleton behind me agent scully seems to keep creeping a little bit closer to the camera as we continue. that's a good poltergeist so, flex i like that yes yeah. so that's it for us today uh but we pass the otherworldly torch to you be it yours to hold it spookily high what do you think about this could there be some sort of compelling, provable, reproducible cause for poltergeist activity? Could it be a mystery in the developing brain of a young adult? Uh, could it be just a cultural lens through which we view weird things? Yes. <laughs> Who knows? Well, we want to know what you think. So find us on social media. We are Conspiracy Stuff on Twitter and Facebook on Yes, on Instagram, we are Conspiracy Stuff Show. If you also go on Facebook, you can find our uh, community page. It's called Here's Where It Gets Crazy. We highly recommend you check it out. Spend some time there. Uh, if you don't want to do that stuff, you can give us a call. All you have to do is dial 
S-T-D-W-Y-T-K. Let us know your story, and most importantly, let us know whether you are comfortable with it being used on the air, because we need to know. Uh, while we're on the subject of listeners, uh, we do have to give a shout-out to Victoria W. Over on our Facebook page, you mentioned, Matt, here's where it gets crazy, uh, just because they were... Uh, they started a drinking game based on catchphrases we've used in the show. So I hope nobody gets alcohol poisoning. Uh, but also want to shout out all the all the people who have written in and decided to, in place of identifying one of the hosts to get onto that page, you have been telling us some jokes that are amazing. So shout out to Jordan S., who uh, gives us the correct term for Pinterest users. Her husband calls them pin terrorist. Uh, and shout out to... Gerald T., who says, uh, here's my current favorite joke. Two windmills built close together were getting to know one another. What kind of music do you like, asked one. The other replied, well, I've always been a big metal fan. <laughs> wow. Sometimes wooden. Sometimes wooden. <laughs> a lot of times wooden. But Okay. Anyway, so we are we are shriveled with that. But what if you don't like phones? If you don't like social media or amazing memes and awesome jokes, there is still one way you can always contact us, regardless of the day of the week, the time, your position on Poltergeist, whether you are or are not currently haunted. You can send us a good old fashioned email where we are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. 
That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.